Grab your Bibles, turn to John 20. John 20, verse 30 and 31. Two verses, important verses. I'm going to read 29 with it because it's important to put it all in context. So Jesus said to him, this Thomas, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. Hey, I wanted to, before we begin to walk into the text this morning, I wanted to draw our attention to something uh, we were just coming off the mission trip last, uh, last weekend um, with Encounter. My mind was fixed on other things, and, uh, but I wanted, to, I wanted to address something that happened. And I want us to celebrate for a second. I'm not saying we need to be loud and jump up and down. If you want to, I guess you can. Many of us have been walking with the Lord for a long, long time. And we have grown up in this culture and we have looked at the devastation that is in our culture and has been in our culture since Roe v. Wade um, was enacted and, and solidified by the Supreme Court. And it is a really, really big deal that that has been overturned. Now, I know the battle is still going to continue to fight for the unborn, but this is a really big deal. I want you to think about this for a moment. Many of us have been praying for decades and decades and decades that God would intervene and God would do something to honor children, unborn children, preborn children who are made by His hand. He is the Creator. Scripture is clear about that in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And it is not our role to undo what God has done. And it has happened for a long time. And we should praise His name today that um, there has been a victory in this area. Amen? Amen. 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 All right. I just so wanted to say that this morning. I think it's important for us to, to recognize that. So we come to the final two verses of John chapter 20. And as we come to them, John is going to set forth for us his reason for writing this incredible gospel. So we will enter into John 21 here soon. We've got four more specific talks connected in John 21. And then it's kind of officially over. Though I've gone back reading again. And as I've gone back reading again, we're going to look at some of... Some, some of the really key themes kind of when this is over, to kind of go back over them, to remember them. Um, as I said in the very beginning, I think every word of God, every book of God, Old Testament and New T- Testament, is incredibly significant. But I believe that the Gospel of John is so unique in its perspective of Jesus that it, it has been worth our three years, it'll be three years when it's said and done, to walk verse by verse and word by word um, through this. So John's stating his purpose in writing this, that we would come to believe. All of us need spiritual purpose. Would you agree with me? We need purpose to know how are we to live. And so John, now as he gets to the end and it's all this narrative and all this teaching, 
And he stops for a second and writes a couple of sentences to say, I want you to know why I've painstakingly written all of this to you so that you would, you would know who Jesus is and that you would know that you must give your life to Him, that life is found in Him alone. So as we have shared so often around here at LifePoint, we must put everything in biblical context. And so the reason I read verse 29 a while ago is we have to connect 29 Thomas's response, Jesus' response to Thomas of demanding, I'm not going to believe unless I can see it, unless I can touch his scars, with what, we share, what John pauses now to write in this gospel for us. And so Thomas speaks that in verse 29, Jesus says, Have you believed because you have seen me? And then Jesus says to him, Blessed are those who have not seen and have yet have believed. So out of these words of affirmation from Jesus, speaking to Thomas, John's writing a comparison and making a strong conclusion for us that that is connected to everyone that would read his gospel in the future. That we have not seen Jesus ourselves, and so we would come to believe by reading the written testimony of John's gospel. And so the blessing comes for those who believe without seeing. Now, obviously, it was a blessing to see Jesus. The twelve and everyone else who, who did that, or eleven really, you know, was a blessing for Judas, but he wastes his opportunity. So the blessing comes to you and I, I want to remind us this morning, by believing without seeing. We've not seen Jesus yet. We will see Him one day. But we have only seen Him now through the writing of Scripture and through the eyes of faith. John has been gone from the earth for over 1,900 years now. And so it's hard for us to think about, I don't know if you thought about it before, but what are, what are people in heaven doing right now? What kind of conversations are they having? What have they been having for a long time? And the only glimpse that we get is, or we get several glimpses, is they are worshiping. We know that. Will you agree with me? They're worshiping. They're, they're loving being in the presence of Jesus. So we see that there's that. We also see that there's an instance in the book of Revelation where the saints who have gone are standing before the throne of God and they say to God, how long are you going to wait to bring judgment to the earth? And so there's an understanding that, that at least they have, that there's not a, a final reality of what's going to come. But I've wondered this about John, so we don't know a whole lot about that. We know this, I know this for sure. They are not watching us. This is a place of brokenness and sadness. And there's none of that in heaven. So they are not watching us. What a sad thing that would be to be there and to see the wrestling and the struggle that we have here. But I have wondered this, particularly with John. Does John have any idea of how all of those hours of being led by the Spirit to write the story of Jesus, how they have changed lives? Is there an instance or are there instances in that place of no time, does John ever get to talk to those who step into heaven that are there because they read the testimony that he wrote about the glory and the majesty of Jesus and they have come to faith? And if that is the case, what kind of conversations are those that John has with those who are there? So we're going to walk through his gospel purpose. And I want to share with you initially 
three primary reasons, really four, I should say four. These aren't in the notes, won't be on the screen. Four primary reasons based on these last two verses in chapter 20 as to why John wrote this. Number one is this, is this text is eyewitness based. This is not a made up story. John is writing things that he saw himself. He is writing things that he heard himself. He is writing things that they have talked about afterwards, no doubt about that. Like, can you believe what happened today? Can you believe when he did this? And just the the things that they would have talked about. So this is an eyewitness account. Secondly, this is evidence-based. This gospel is evidence-based. He is going after reason, presenting facts, pictures of who Jesus is. This book is full of evidence so that we would see that Jesus is the Son of God. So one written from an eyewitness account, it is full of evidence connected to what they saw that were true. Again, not made up stories. Thirdly, this is an evangelistic gospel. John writes, I've written this to you so that you would believe in His name. So one of the things that we do is, and I've done this many, many years of my life, is go to the Gospel of John sharing faith and talking with people who do not know the Lord. John shares so much. And so John here, as he finishes chapter 20, says, I've written this for an evangelistic reason, that people would come to believe in the Son of God. And the fourth reason is this, is that we would begin to see the exclusivity or that there is none like Jesus, that He alone is the one who gives life. So that's the purpose of John's gospel. That he would write from an eyewitness account. He would present the evidence of the things that he saw. That it would, as he wrote this, it would bring about an evangelistic work of bringing people to faith. And lastly, that we would see that we must place our faith alone in Christ. He alone saves. Not our works and not anything else. Look with me in verse 30 now. I'm going to read through um, just the first part of verse 30, and I want to talk about the inexhaustible nature of Jesus. So John's going to also, when he closes chapter uh, 21, he's going to kind of come back to this idea here of how many things Jesus did. So he writes, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. So John is going to ask the reader now, I presented you many things about who Jesus is. Primarily seven signs, but there are so many things that give evidence to who Christ is throughout this gospel. And so he's, he wants them to consider, um, I have not had the opportunity to live long enough to write all the things that I saw and heard. So I've given you a good account of what this looks like, about what he said, about what he did, about why we ought to believe in him. And so he's affirming that there is an inexhaustible nature of Jesus. That he can do all things. As a matter of fact, he's done so many things. They saw and heard so many things that they couldn't write them down. Now there's a number of things in the Gospel of John that we could point to to say, well, that's a sign about who Christ is. Obviously, the cross and the resurrection are signs. He died in our place as a substitute. He was buried. He rose again on the third day. Day. So there are four resurrections in the New Testament. Jesus did the three of them and then his, his resurrection as well. And so, um, so there's, 
much evidence in regard to that, in regard to who he is. You could also consider the I am statements that he makes. He makes a number of I am statements that John lists um, in this gospel. Some people have said that one of the clear signs of who he was is his cleansing of the temple. I'm one of those who believes that he cleansed the temple early in his ministry and he cleansed the temple in the last week of his ministry. And some, some have said that that's evidence as to who he is desiring the cleansing and the holiness of the temple. But if you really closely examine John's gospel, he gives seven that he calls signs that should be evidence to us as to who Jesus is. So I'm just going to briefly remind us of them, and then we are going to, uh, in detail, talk about them under point two here in a moment. John chapter two, he turns the water into wine. John chapter four, um, the healing of the royal official's son, he does it from a distance. John chapter five, he heals the paralyzed man who's been paralyzed for 38 years. John chapter six, he takes... Um, some bread and some fish, and he feeds upwards to 20,000 people on that day. Just after that, in John chapter 6, he walks on top of the water. In John chapter 9, he heals a man who has been born blind. And in John chapter 11, we see the raising of Lazarus. So he did many, many signs and many things that we don't even know about. John writes these seven to say these are very important for you to understand. What's the purpose of signs? You ever gone to an ultimate destination or, or you're at Six Flags, you're at some other place, and there's signs that are there saying, go this way. And eventually when you get there, there's a sign that says, you have what? You've arrived. All of these signs aren't the des- end of the destination. The signs' purpose are what? To get us to Jesus, to see who he is. So John gives us seven of these. A sign was a miracle, but it pointed to something more to be considered um, about the nature and the glory of Christ. So we look at all four Gospels, and some of them repeat some of the same uh, miracles. There are 39, and depending who you talk to, 40 different miracles in Um, the four Gospels. John has seven of them, main ones. Um, So again, there's, there's 39 or 40 depending on who you talk to. Now think about this for a moment with me as we look at this. John saw all of those seven miracles that he writes about, but he saw so many more. Israel was literally filled with visible evidence of the majesty and the power and the authority of Jesus. It happened everywhere. So think about this with me just for a moment. Let's say it's 40 specific miracles that the four Gospels give us. John, at the end of the Gospel, now here in John chapter 20, verse 30, says this. Listen, I'm just letting you know about this, but there are so many things that Jesus did, and he closes the Gospel saying, I suppose that all the books in the world could not even contain what Jesus did. So think about this for a second. If we just have 40 recorded miracles, and John says we can't even write what he did, there were aspects of every day that he was doing 40 an hour. He was doing 250 miracles a day. He is just literally 
all over Israel doing miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle. And it was just astounding what he was able to do. So we trust in the eyewitness accounts that they're saying this, that you cannot fathom and imagine how much that Jesus did. Why don't you look with me there just for a second. Go to 2125 so you can see this. So now there also were many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. We're going to move on to point two here in just a second, but let me just say this. I love going on mission trips and at nighttime talking about what happened during the day and reflecting. And Can you imagine nighttime conversations that the 11 must have had through the years and through the decades of just going, hey, you remember that? You remember that? You remember that? You remember that? And just on and on and on talking about the inexhaustible nature of Jesus. He is limitless in his power to save, heal our brokenness, to bring joy. He knows everything without having to seek out the truth and any information. His word is so commanding that it will last for all of eternity. He is so awesome. He is so holy. He is so one of a kind that no one can match him. And we will be as he is, but we will not be him. He is alone. He stands out. He is inexhaustible. Secondly, this morning, let's talk about the significance of the eyewitness accounts that Jesus is to be the object of our faith. So John writes there, Now Jesus did many other signs in in 2030 in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. And I want to talk about just for a little bit about in the presence of the disciples. Let's just pause for a moment and think about what they saw just in the seven signs that John writes for us in the gospel. So they're at a wedding in John chapter 2. Somebody didn't plan enough didn't know about enough guests or whatever the case is, and they have run out of wine during the celebration time of the wedding. So Jesus' mom, Mary, comes and says, hey, uh, they've run out of wine. And he says, what, why are you troubling me with this? What, 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 is, what does this have to do with me? And in that moment, his very first public miracle, you see the creative ministry of Jesus and the authority that he can create something out of nothing that doesn't exist. So he's got water there and he, he turns the waters. They fill the water into these giant jars. He turns it into wine. John chapter 4, a man sends or, or a man comes and, and he comes to Jesus. He hears that Jesus is around and he comes to Jesus and he says, he says, can you please come and heal my son? Can you please come? And Jesus said, I'm, I'm not going to go with you, but you go. And you will find out that I have healed your son. And so he trusts in what Jesus says. And you remember the story, what happens? He leaves. He doesn't stay and beg. No, 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 you got to come to my town. you got, you got to bring your physical presence there. And so he begins to walk away. And they have sent servants from his home a, 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 a number of miles away. And when they meet halfway and they tell him, your son is healed. And the man says, at what time of day was it? And he realized it was in that exact very moment that Jesus said, go, your son will be healed. 
He reveals in that moment that he can do things from a distance. He has such power and authority that he can bring restoration from a distance. John chapter 5, a man who's been paralyzed for 38 years, his legs do not work anymore. And he proves that he is Lord over the Sabbath and of the body of sickness and brokenness. And this sign revealed um, that he has the power over uh, the absolute weakness of ritualistic religion and that he is mighty to save and that he can say to a man, you pick up your mat right now and you walk. And that's exactly what the man does. He picks up his mat and he walks away and he proves that he can bring complete restoration. In John chapter 6, he's been teaching all day and literally scholars have, have, have done a lot of research just based on what's there that probably around 20,000 people have been gathered that day. One little boy has decided... I've been around Jesus for a bit. He's a long-winded preacher. So I'm going to bring me a lunch. And so he brings a lunch. They find him that he's brought the lunch. They place this bread and this fish in the hands of Jesus. He lifts up his eyes to heaven and he prays and he touches it. And he gives it to the twelve. And they walk among the 20,000 people. And over and over and over and over and over, the baskets just kept being full. They never got empty. There was so much left over that there were basketfuls left over. And so he proves here that he has power over nature. He can multiply. He can do things. Just a little bit later, he proves that same thing again when he walks on top of the water to get to the disciples onto the other side of the lake. In John chapter 9, verse 1 through 41, we get the story of the healing of the man born blind. He reveals that he has power over blindness. Even the man says, as they bring him before the religious leaders, they bring him and they're, they're castigating him and they're getting on to him. And he's like, I'm shocked at you guys. You're the religious leaders. Never before, the man says, it's been healed. Never before has it been heard that a man has healed the eyes of someone born blind. And yet this man has done this in my life. And then in John chapter 11, in the raising of Lazarus from the dead, four days dead, body decaying, he proves that he has the power over death and to give life. So here's what I want to say to us this morning as we finish up this point. It is absolutely critical for you and I in in a day and time in which you and I live in the West where there is so much attack on the written text of the Scripture that you and I don't buy into those lies. What has come to us has been written by eyewitnesses. And again, if our God is sovereign, are we in agreement that He's sovereign and all-powerful? Are we in agreement of that? So if the Spirit led men to write out the text and the stories, the Holy Spirit did, man weren't just doing this themselves, but they were, yes, thinking. They weren't robots. They were thinking about the eyewitness things that they saw and heard being led by the Spirit, being carried along by the Spirit, as 2 Peter 1 tells us, that no prophecy of Scripture ever originated in man. It originated in God. That's why the Scripture is different than every book. If God is sovereign, though man has touched the Scripture by by scribes and by writing and by um, copying texts, and we come into this room this morning as a result of of much faithful work throughout the last 2,000 years in regard to the New Testament. 
you and I must become the kind of people who trust that God knew how to preserve this and that it was supernaturally written by God, by the Spirit, through men. And we are, listen, we are to trust the eyewitness accounts. We are to trust them. I shake my head often when I hear people say, here 2,000 years later, discounting those who saw this and lived during the time, now 2,000 years later, saying, well, that's not really what they saw. It's not really what he did. There's been too much of this and too much of that, and they they disdain what you and I love, the sacred scriptures. Peter would later in 2 Peter 1.16 says, listen, we didn't, we didn't make up stories. We didn't follow cleverly de- devised myths about who Jesus is. He says this, when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, Peter says, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, this was on the Mount of Transfiguration, Peter says, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory when it said this, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice from heaven for we were with him. We were eyewitnesses. We were ear witnesses of what the father said on the mount about who Jesus is. So this is true. We embrace it. Many attacks and many questions. Is this really a book of truth? Is it a certain word that you and I can trust in? How did the writers get their information? Are they forgeries? Why just these books? Are these the original words or have they been changed? And it, on and on and on and on. People question. And so we're not that kind of people. We are the kind of people who trust the eyewitnesses accounts. So Peter says, we didn't follow. We made known to you what we heard, what we saw, and we let you know about it. The apostles know what they are talking about, for they heard it and they saw it. And their testimony is really important. So important that the apostle Paul would write to the church in Ephesus and he would say these words in the first century, very close that when Christ died and rose again and ascended and the church was birthed, Paul wrote these words, Ephesians 2.20, that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets and Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. These men are very important for us to trust what they wrote. They were there, they heard it, they saw it. And so it's important for us There is a tremendous amount of credibility of resting and trusting in the eyewitness testimony of the apostles. Their testimony is true and it gives credibility to our faith. And they become for us balcony people. They cheer us on in a sense. The writer of Hebrews in chapter 12 verse 1 says this, We are surrounded by what? A great cloud of witnesses who have stood on the testimony of the Scripture, who gave their lives for the Scripture, 
They were persecuted and they preached it and they talked about it. They discipled people in the sacred texts of the Scripture. And so they become for us kind of balcony people cheering us on. They are not our focus. We learn from them. Jesus is ultimately our focus. And so he, the writer of Hebrews says in 12.1, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us be like them. Let us lay aside every weight and the sin that clings to us and wants to keep us from moving forward. So I strongly, before we move on to the next point, and I would love, do you disagree with me on this point? I'd love to talk with you this week. I'd love to talk to you with, about this. We are to trust the eyewitness accounts. Listen, if you can't trust the eyewitness accounts, then you cannot trust anything in the New Testament. You can't. And what are we doing this morning? We can trust the eyewitness accounts as trustworthy and true of our very lives. Here's the third thing. The aim of the apostles' testimony, John writes here, in the Word of God, is that we would come to a place to believe that Jesus is the Christ. So he says in the first part of 31, but these are written, the things that I've written, John says, the things that I've written in my gospel here, they were written so that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. So listen to this. These things, every word, every, every beginning, so from in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So from John 1.1 to the very end of chapter 21, all of the, these things were written to be an influence over every Christ follower in every generation. In every generation. The verb tense that's here um, in verse 31 is in the perfect tense indicating that this gospel would stand through all time. Guess what will be standing true in heaven? The gospel of John. God's word will stand for all time and particularly here on the earth in every generation. We have but one source to learn about Jesus and know who Jesus is so that we can believe in Him and have faith in Him. And that is these written testimonies that have come from those who were eyewitnesses of Jesus. Our great blessing then comes in this, that we have this wondrous book that has come to us from people who directly received words of God, wrote them down, and they have come to us. We are reading the book of Amos right now. It probably is not on a lot of people's high list of, of reading. It's phenomenal. We had our life group this past Tuesday night in my office. Incredible things there. The book of Amos where God's showing, listen, I do not show impartiality to anyone. As I deal with my people, I'm going to deal with the nations who, who have done evil to my people. And God communicating His heart. And we see glimpses of Jesus in the book of Amos. And so every word that has come to us, from Old Testament and New Testament, has come from the heart of God. And the design of it all is that we would believe that Jesus is the Christ. The Old Testament points to who? Jesus. Getting us ready for the coming of Jesus. What does the New Testament reveal to us? The glory of Jesus that He has come to die in our place. That the Father sent Him. 
And that when He went away, that the Father and Son would send the Spirit to now indwell us. And so the aim of John writing this gospel is that we would come to a place of belief. It has a tremendous amount of evangelistic aspect to it. So the Holy Spirit inspired all of the writers to faithfully and truthfully write everything. This is important. To write everything that you and I need to know about Jesus so that we would come to faith and so that other people would come to faith. So again, what does John say twice here? We have so much more stuff that Jesus did and said that we don't even know about. But we, but we have enough of what he did and what he said to come to a place to believe and come to faith. So what this means is that for every Christ follower, the scripture, not our feelings, not our own intellect, is the one and only reliable source for our faith. And again, this affirms why the Bible is of the utmost importance in our lives. For the word reveals the revelation of who Jesus is. Not anything else. It is a revelation of who he is. So therefore, every experience, every thought, every dream, every feeling must line up with what? The scripture. It becomes the guide. If we miss that reality, then we will miss everything. It is the reason the scripture was written to reveal to us the glory of Jesus. So sometimes you hear people say, well, I feel that Jesus is kind of like this. It's okay to say that if what you say lines up with scripture. So whatever we feel like Jesus is like, we've got to look in here and see, okay, is he like that? Okay, is he like that? Okay, then that's true. Or when some say, well, I think Jesus does this. Well, does the scripture reveal to us that that's what Jesus did? Do we see evidence of that? So the necessity of John's writing this gospel is that we would come to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God who came to die in our place. So he is therefore the centerpiece of the revelation of God and therefore he is the centerpiece of civilization. Why is our country so confused and there's so much chaos and so much confusion? Because Jesus is not the centerpiece of people's lives. And when he is that for us, and we know that the eyewitness accounts communicate to us the glory, this revelation of who he is in scripture, and we know who he is, and, and it leads us to a place of him opening our eyes and we believing that he is the one who can save us. And so John wrote all of these things, stressing to us that Jesus must be the object of our faith. Incidentally, John writes the word believe 98 times in these 21 chapters. What do you think he's getting at? We are to what? We are to believe. We are to believe in Jesus. Here's the last point this morning. It's the quickest I've got to the last point. I think in the history of the church here. And that by believing, you may have life in his name. So again, I want to go back to this in stress here, the contrast that John's wanting to make in Thomas's response. I, I'm not going to believe until I see it. 
So I see the evidence, I see the wounds, and I can put my hand in his side. But we are to be the ones who believe without seeing. Go back to John chapter 6 for a second. We'll show you something there. John 6. So when we come to believe, we believe in Him. And when we believe in Him, we get life in His name. John 6, verse 35. So Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not Believe. So again, Jesus giving strong affirmation here. Think about this for a second. Everywhere, when you really think through what John 20, 30, and John 21, 35 say, all over Israel, what did people see on a daily basis almost? Miracles. Evidence that this man is God in our midst. Leprosy is healed. The dead come to life. The blind see, people who can't walk, walk. People possessed by demons and throw themselves in fire are healed of that. And they are set right in their mind daily, over and over almost. This was happening. So much so, again, that John writes, I suppose that all the books in the world could not contain what Jesus did. So all over Israel... People were eyewitnesses of what Jesus did. And what does Jesus say to them? The majority, did they believe or not believe? They didn't believe. They didn't believe. This that idea that you may have talked to somebody before who said this. I tell you, if somebody were to rise from the dead, I would believe. No, you wouldn't. Four rose from the dead in three years of Jesus' ministry. And people didn't believe. On that Friday morning, they're shouting, crucify him. Now I want you to look at one other text with me. Go to Matthew. It's okay in the study of John to go to Matthew. So let's go to Matthew chapter 11. So Jesus is going to speak here about there was enough evidence for people to believe. They had seen enough. Matthew 11 verse 20. We'll read through 24. Matthew eleven twenty. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, They would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. That's a strong statement, by the way. It would still be around, 24. But I tell you, it would be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Again, this is just another affirmation that Jesus was doing stuff, what? 
all the time. Over and over and over again, Jesus was revealing who He was and the response of people was to not believe. They didn't believe that He was the one who came. So both John 6, Matthew 11, the text revealed and refute those again who say, if I could see a miracle, I would believe. That's not true. People heard, people saw, and refused to believe. And I believe everyone in the room this morning, we are longing for real life, but the only way to have real life is to have life in Jesus Christ. And so therefore the greatest blessing comes to those who believe even though they have not seen. So the blessing comes, the ultimate blessing, comes to those who have not seen but believe in the apostolic testimony in the Scripture. In the early days of the church, in Peter's first gospel, he's writing to a group of scattered believers, and he writes to them these words in 1 Peter 1.8, Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. And though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him, And rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So, the fourth principle from this is that John wants us to know that if you're going to have spiritual life, you're going to have eternal life, you're going to have real life here on the earth, it will come by believing in the name of who? Jesus. That's the only way. It's not by being good enough. It's not by being baptized. I've said this before, and because it's a baptism day, I want to say it again. I was put under the water four times in my life. Baptized. And I didn't become a believer until after those four baptisms. So it's it's not about what we do It's about what He has done. That's the key. And what He has done is die in our place to give us life. So let me give some takeaways as we finish that I think are really important for us. And so if you are taking notes, these are, I think, important that come out of the text here. I encourage us to examine the works of Jesus in the Gospels. Look at what He did. They give testimony as to who He is, that this is God in the midst of people. Examine the works of Jesus as they reveal His powerful nature. The works affirm that He is God. They affirm that He is God. Secondly, this morning, I want to emphasize this, really important, that both our salvation and our sanctification, so we come to know Christ, then we begin to grow in our relationship with Christ, Salvation and sanctification are connected to believing in Jesus. Both of those are connected to believing in Jesus. So we come to faith by believing in Jesus. We continue in our faith by the same process, by believing in Jesus. So by salvation, we believe in a salvation. In our sanctification, we believe that He has life, and we have life in His name, and we begin to live out that faith. John's gospel is so unique that it brings people to believe in Jesus, come to salvation. It is one of the best sanctification books. Anytime I talk to somebody who's a new believer and they were to ask me this question, what should I read in the Bible? 
The first thing that I tell them to read is to read the Gospel of John. Read John. Read John. You will begin to learn who Jesus is. It is one of the best Christ-centered books. It's one of the best theological books that is there in the Bible for us to understand who Jesus is. So one, we should examine the works of Jesus. They remind us that He is God in our midst. Secondly, our salvation and our sanctification are grounded in believing in Jesus. We believe unto salvation. In our sanctification, we continue to believe and trust that He is the only one. Here's the third thing, and it's really important. This dominates some aspects of Christianity regardless of culture. We see it in Asia. We see it here. Chase Jesus, not signs. Chase Jesus, not signs. Let me show you what I mean by that. Go back to John chapter 6 just for a minute. We're going to read just a couple of verses here. Again, Jesus did signs all over Israel and people didn't believe. And so in John chapter 6, they're chasing him on the other side of the lake because he did a sign the day before. So they chase him on the other side of the lake because they want him to do more bread stuff. John chapter 6, verse 2. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the 6th. Go to verse 26 of John 6. So Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for food that perishes, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Look at verse 30 of John 6. So he's... They eyewitness a sign the day before. He multiplied bread and fish and fed 20,000 people. They've got up in the morning, found out he's not there. They've run to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And when they find him, look at verse 30. But they said to him, then what sign do you do? Hello? I did one yesterday. What sign do you do that we may, look what they say, that we may see and believe you. What work do you perform? Now go to chapter 10 of John. We'll finish here with this point. John chapter 10, verse 36. And do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? Look at 37. If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. Don't believe me. So here's the thing. Listen, it's really important. We are to chase Jesus, not signs. Does God give direction at times through circumstances and things? Yes. But we are to seek Jesus. We are to seek Him. I don't think He's showing up on tortillas. I don't. I'm sorry. But I think sometimes in life circumstances or in creation, we see His majesty, do we not? Yeah, we see that. 
So at times he gives these things that we know give indication of who he is. But the point is this. Chase Jesus, not the signs. Because if, if, if the signs are the deal and we're chasing the signs, we are demanding of him to submit to what we want him to do. And that's not how this works. He's sovereign. And if he wants to reveal something, he gets to reveal. If he wants to disclose something, then he gets to disclose it. Fourth thing. We must orient our lives around the written testimony of Jesus. We must orient our lives around the written testimony of Jesus. Sometimes preachers get in trouble. Did you know that? Did y'all know that? This is a response question. Yes, okay. They say things on a Sunday morning and and God's told them to kind of say it and they wrestle with it. Oh, Lord, this is not going to go over real well. So I'm about to do one of those. I'm preempting, letting you know. In our lives, as a church, we are to center our lives, our families, our work ethic, our spending of money, how we respond to situations around the written testimony of Jesus. Period. That means that sports, hobbies, work, spending of money, attitudes are not to take precedent in our life. We are to orient our lives around Jesus in the written testimony about him. And guess what happens when we do that? I haven't talked about this in a while, but I became a believer end of my high school days. And I eventually played college football. I wasn't great, but I, I made it. So I got there. I can honestly say this that I loved Jesus, and there were times in the middle of a football game when things are kind of chaos. Um, you, you have no idea what's being said in that huddle that's there, and they break, and they go get up, get ready to run a play. What's being said, and who's mad, and who wants the ball? And there were moments at times where in the midst of the chaos, in the middle of a football game, I sensed the presence of Jesus in my life. You see, when he's our dominant passion and he is what we are chasing after, you know what happens? In every single area of our life, his presence gets manifested and we experience him. So yeah, in the middle of a football field, I experience Jesus at times. I've done so in my office. I've done so at home. And you know what I'm talking about as well. That's why the key is, that we get off course because we do not orient our lives around the Scripture. We allow other things to become more important. And when those other things become more important, Jesus is pushed away. And so, therefore, sometimes in these situations of our lives, we don't know what to do. Why? Because we're not pursuing Him and he's, we've not oriented our lives around the written testimony of Jesus. So as a church, we take three years to walk through the Gospel of John. 
Not to get a trophy. Not to pat ourselves on the back. Because we know this, that we must orient our lives around what? The written testimony of Jesus. How do you do that? Well, you've got to know what the testimony says. So you take your time. You never rush it. We read one chapter a week in the W-4. Why? Take your time. Let's study it. Let's read it. Let's know what's being said there. So we today, right now in this room, are living in what they saw and what they wrote down for us. And they would say to you and I, orient your life around the Scripture. Did you know that already, by the time Peter wrote his second letter, it's called 2 Peter, you get to chapter 3, it's just three chapters. Peter's writing to these believers and he, he says these words to them. He says, you know, we've read our beloved Paul's letters. We've read them. It's got some confusing things in them, some really deep things in them. Watch what was already happening in the early church. If Peter's writing to a group of Christians, a specific letter to them, when it got to them, they were reading it. So they would read Peter's letter. And then Peter writes there in 2 Peter 3 that some of Paul's letters had made it to these very same people. And guess what? Those very same people that are reading Peter's second letter have been reading. What have they been reading? The Apostle Paul's letters. So we see already a couple of decades into the church, and the church didn't begin to write, God didn't begin to write Scripture immediately. Guess what the churches were doing? They were orienting their lives around the public reading of Scripture. You see that? So in our day and time, you will hear people who think they know better that there's another strategy that's better than those that walked with Jesus and there's not a better strategy. The only strategy is that we orient our lives around the written testimony of Scripture. One last thing and we're just going to read it. Go back to John chapter 4. I'm going to show you what happens when somebody believes, when evangelism comes to a person's life and they become a believer and then they are told to do something about that and they begin to live it. John chapter 4, listen to this transformation beginning in verse 31. So meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, had somebody brought him something to eat? And he said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. So do not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap for that which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Now look at 39. The Samaritan woman's come to faith. She's seen who Jesus is. She's gone back into the town. So many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him. Watch. Because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. And they said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard it our, for ourselves. 
And we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Has your life been changed by Jesus? Have you come to know him? Have you come to believe? Are you growing in that relationship by wanting to know more about who he is? And, and have you gone and said, I want to tell you about somebody who knew everything about my life. He knew all my scars, all my poor decisions. And how amazing is that? And the testimony was so strong that a woman that was an outcast, listen, her testimony was so strong that a whole town leaves the town to go out and, and see what she's talking about. And I wonder for us in the room this morning if we would be the kind of people who, who embrace what John writes here at the close of John chapter 20, that we are to believe He is the Son of God and that we, we trust the written testimony of the eyewitnesses, that they know what they are talking about, that our God is sovereign and so He's protected His Word and what's come to us can be believed in. And believers have great, can have great impact upon others like the Samaritan woman when they come to believe and they come to trust in who Jesus is. So that's how John closes John chapter 20. Next week or two weeks from now, whenever it is, we will uh, um, see them going back to their old life of fishing. And there'll be some incredible things that we will see. Let's pray.